Good to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 27. We've been out of Proverbs 20, out of the book of Proverbs here for the last couple of weeks with camp and everything that we've been doing. And we wanted to make sure that we sewed camp up the way it needed to be. And God got uh, everything out of it that he wanted. And we're still going to continue to work on that. But last time we were together in Proverbs, we looked at one of the greatest principles in in all of the Bible uh, for us to have, uh, you know, to help each other. Our theme of camp, uh, as you can see, still up on the board up here, was to overcome, to be a, a victorious and not being a victim. And uh, we have talked about, uh, you know, the last time we were together in Proverbs, it was verse 17, which is probably one of the greatest verses anywhere you're going to find on, on really what the job is of each of us to uh, each other. Romans chapter 14 is a great chapter, and it talks about how we get along with each other. You that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. It talks about how that we are to help each other and be there for each other. And the last time in Proverbs, we were in verse 17 of chapter 27, which says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friends. And I talked to you that morning about uh, the people we associate with. Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen good Christians go down the tube simply because they weren't bad people, but the people they hung out with were. <laughs> and uh, it, it got to them in a period of time. Uh, you know, you want to be with around people who make you better, not only in your character and in life, but for the Lord, strengthen you. You know, and I, I took this principle right into camp and used it with everything else that we did with our kids. And from this and what else we did, we formed them into accountability groups, something that we've really never done before coming out of a camp. And I hope as a parent, and I've been kind of, you know, checking it here, checking it there and talking to the kids and talking to moms and dads, uh, it seems like most of you are really uh, on top of it and encouraging it. And, and I encourage you to, if your child is in, a, in a, an accountability group <clears throat> with some other kids, Give them some ideas. Give them some things. Bring them over. Have a night where you cook them dinner or you just do something with them. Get involved. Lead them. Uh, And I've said it many, many times. Parents will either get caught up in the drama that all kids go through or they'll lead their kids through that drama. And you have a great opportunity now to stay in touch with your child in the Word of God, uh, an accountability factor that is, you know, unprecedented. And so I, I took this very principle that we talked about right before camp. And, uh, you know, and I, I talked about keeping them keeping each other accountable and being responsible for each other and encouraging each other, making each other better. And today, you know, we're going to move into another great verse. And, uh, you know, in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 18. Now, let me just say this. You know, I know that in preaching and teaching, I've learned this just from years of experience that you you have to have a balance. Some guys, when they get up, all they do is preach. They just scream and yell for 365 days a year when they get up and they preach. Some guys couldn't preach their way out of a wet paper bag, and so they get up and just teach in a mellow tone voice. You got to be able to have a balance in your preaching and your teaching. There's times that you need to be preached to. There's times that you need to be taught. And a good pastor will know the ability to have the ability to be able to do both in the same sermon. You not even know he did it. It's a thing where it's the ability to communicate God's truth. And we've had a lot of good, uh, a lot of good practical stuff over the last four or five weeks. 
We went to camp. It was practical. Last week was practical. The week before that was practical. Verse 17 was practical. We have been giving you some good, solid, practical principles to live your life by, which is invaluable. But at the same time, you have to learn your Bible in time. And today you're going to get a large chunk of your Bible. And I know you look at this little verse we're going to read here in a moment. You wouldn't think that, but you know what? It's some little things that come out and bite you that you didn't. You know, when you get bit with a dog, it's the little dogs who bite you worse than the big dogs. You ever notice that? I mean, I've had pit bulls run by me, you know, and a little weenie chihuahua looks like it was a rat with a genetic defect, you know, and come behind you when you're not expecting it and nail you right on the calf. She can't, he can't get any higher in the calf, but, but that's good because then when you step on his head, he, you know, he just <laughs> send of self-destructs. But anyway, I, I wouldn't do that. Look, you're going to get some Bible today. And uh, we have to learn the Bible and put it together. And it's the key. If you just get all inspirational stuff all the time, that's great. But uh, uh, you have to learn uh, the Bible to know not only what you believe, but why you believe it. And so uh, this verse today will help you, uh, you know, lay out your Bible and help put things in a, into a proper perspective. You know, you've heard me say many, many times uh, through Bible study. In fact, every time somebody asks a question in Bible study, I always take the time to, to lay this out and, and show you how to do it. Because you've heard me say many, many times how important context will be in the Bible. And, you know, the Bible itself has a context to it. Many people try to approach the Bible without understanding the context by which God gave us the Bible. But you're going to find also that uh, the books in the Bible have a context. It wasn't there somebody a long time ago just decided to put the books in whatever order they're in. They're in there by a design that show you a context of what God is trying to do. And chapters in the Bible. You know, chapters in the Bible, they all have to fit into a context. You know why we got so many heresies today of, of speaking in tongues or losing your salvation or, or predestination or amillennialism or postmillennialism? You know why that? It's because guys get into chapters in the Bible and in books in the Bible and the Bible themselves and have absolutely no clue what the context is. It's true of verses. How many times has somebody took in a verse out of Matthew chapter 25 to prove you can lose your salvation? How many times has somebody taken a verse out of James or taken a verse out of Acts or taken a verse out of here to try to prove something that it was never intended to prove? And, of course, the reason they do that is because they're lifting a verse out of context. You've got to have a context for every verse in the Bible, every chapter in the Bible, and every book in the Bible, and, and the Bible itself. You know, all my life, <clears throat> I've never been the kind of guy who just ex- accepted the status quo. I always, wanted to, I always wanted to know why things were the way they were. You know, I went through life, and uh, my two greatest things I would say is why and how come. I wanted to know why things are the way that they are. Uh, my mind just works in that direction that I wanted to see and understand, you know, what the situation was around me and why things were the way they were. Life can be confusing. It really can and, to buy, and for me, I had to straighten it out. I mean, I never, I, to this day, I don't, you know, I got labs. One now, I had one, another one, buddy died. I had labs, Labrador retrievers. Everybody likes labs. But you know what? You know what I found out? Labrador retrievers are not from Labrador. They're from Newfoundland. Now, what's wrong with that? Something ain't right there. 
We call it French fries. We go to McDonald's. I want to order a French fry. You know, the French didn't invent French fries. The Belgians did. But you know how rotten it would be to go through the drive-thru and want some Belgium fries? I wonder what you're talking about. I'll tell you something else. I've never figured this out. You drive on a parkway, but you park in a driveway. Now, what's wrong with that? All my life, I've asked questions that don't make any sense to people because I want to know. And I've spent my whole life just saying, why is that? How come you do it this way? And some people get offended. They think you're attacking them. I'm not. I just want to know why, uh, if, if somebody's doing a thing better than I can do it, I want to know how to do it. I, I, I just want to know. And I, I know that the, in the Bible, the books have a context, the chapters have a context, and a verse. And it all relates to the Word of God. But I want, to know, I want you to know something. The Bible as a whole will put not only life, not only history, but current events in a proper context. And we see a lot of things out there we don't understand today. We see a lot of things happening that we have questions in our minds about. And I'm telling you, the world doesn't have any answers. Government doesn't have any answers. The only true answers you're going to find of why things are the way they are is found in the Word of God. Because the Word of God, in an entirety, as the Bible, will put life into a context. It'll put history into a context. And certainly what goes on around us into a context. Somebody just this morning... We had another shooting in Ohio last night outside of Dayton. I think it was nine people were killed. Yesterday, or in, in some place in California, there was 20 killed. I, I read it was something like uh, 86 people, 86 public shootings this, this year, of uh, people, somebody going in with a gun and, and killing people. And I, somebody asked me this morning, you know, what, what are we talking about it? And they said, you know, uh, what, how come this didn't happen, you know, 40 years ago? How come this didn't happen, you know, 30, 50 years ago? And the answer to it is that 30, 40, 50 years ago, this country still believed the Bible. You still had it in school. You had it taught in school. I remember when I was in school, they started every day with a prayer and reading a Bible verse. This was public school. There were no Christian schools back then. And it was a thing where the country still had a reverence to the things of God and, and people still believed in God and the Word of God. And that's all gone now today. And when you lose the Bible, you lose everything. So you look around you today and you, 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 you try to put current events, our world, into a context. It's easy when you have a Bible. When you don't have the Word of God, you don't have anything. The Bible's likened to salt. Salt is a preservative. And you take away the salt, as the Bible says in Matthew, and the salt loses its savor, then things begin to corrupt. They begin to degenerate. They begin to get bad because the Word of God is what holds things together. You know what holds your life together this morning if you're a child of God? The book, the Word of God. And you know what happens when you get out of the Word of God? Your life goes down to tubes, doesn't it? You know what happens with your marriage when you do get out of the book? Your marriage goes down to two. You know what happens with your kids when you get out of the Bible with your kids and don't do what's right? Your kids go down to two. The Bible is the book that preserves everything. And, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible concept. And its verse is, and this, and this verse like this one, when you study it out in depth, it will put things all around you into a, a, a 
clear, understandable perspective. Now, now let's look at it. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 18. Whoso keepeth a fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof, so he that waiteth on his master shall be honored. Jim Dereskevich, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me? Amen. You know, looking at that verse, you, you, you wouldn't, you, you wonder, you know, how you're going to get, you know, 45 minutes or so outside of something out of that. You know, you, you think there can't be much here. <laughs> All the unsearchable riches of the Word of God. Now, from a pure practical standpoint, here's what it's simply saying. I want to get this across to you first. He's saying a man who has a tree, in this case a fig tree, uh, or trees, uh, will take care of them, and in time, uh, because he takes care of them, he'll get the fruit that they will bring forth. Here, as I said, it's a fig tree, but it could be an apple tree, a pear tree, uh, uh, you know, a peach tree, or whatever. A man who takes care of trees in the Bible, and also a garden, is called a husbandman. You'll find that first in Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, talking about Noah. And he's called a husbandman when he takes care of trees. And you know that there were uh, trees in the Garden of Eden. There were seven of them. We've laid that out before you before. And, uh, you know, uh, and when Noah gets on the scene, he's called a husbandman. And uh, uh, he's called a husband because he's faithful uh, to his trees like a man uh, is to his wife. And both of them bear fruit in time. And trees need care to be fruitful. Now, from a doctrinal standpoint, and doctrine means the prophetic aspect of it, you know, what the Bible is specifically teaching here, and we know that the book of Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man. We know that that wise man and foolish man is found throughout the Bible as the nation of Israel. Matthew chapter 25 says there were 10 versions. One was five were wise and five were virgin. You go back to second, third John, you have a wise man and a foolish man. You got, it's all through the Bible. And this will be a great truth that has been really lost today, and it's a major piece of your Bible. Now, I know that some of you maybe don't care about getting into the Bible this depth, but uh, I know that there are a lot of you that do, and the reason for that is Bible Institute's packed out every time we do it, and so is people ministry. Thursday night Bible studies packed out. People are always asking good questions because they, they want to learn their Bible, and uh, as you lay it out, you will see that this verse is talking about the nation of Israel and our dealing with them as Christians within the church age. Now, down through history, God has, and you know this if you've been around here, especially in Bible Institute, down through history from Genesis to where we're at, God has reached, uh, tried to reach the world through two simple identities. And uh, God has manifested himself and his truth through these two identities. 
And these two identities <coughs> are called back in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28, and Proverbs chapter 20, verse 10. They're called the landmarks. In Proverbs 22, 28, it's talking about the land, ancient landmark. That'll be the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In Proverbs 23, verse 10, it's talked about the old landmark. <coughs> That'll be the church in the New Testament. And I want to tell you right now, <coughs> when it comes to history, there's no real history if you lose these two landmarks. You know, you go to school, and I'm all for going to school. I went to the sixth grade myself. And, uh, you know, you learn history. You learn American history. You learn world history. You learn geography. All those things, I think those are vitally important. <clears throat> but I want to tell you something. You'll never learn real history from God's standpoint till you understand the two landmarks. Because God, in the history of man, God had a plan. And that plan unfolds within those two identities or the landmarks. And in the Old Testament, you know, it would fold around the nation of Israel. You're going to find in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, and again in chapter, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that when God was talking to Abraham, he told Abraham, he said, all the nations of the world are going to get blessings from you and the people that's going to come from you. He told him again, he says, all the families of the earth are going to find me through this nation the nation of Israel. And, you know, in the Old Testament, God's reaching the world was through that nation, the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of pictures of her throughout the Bible, which, again, opens up your Bible for you. Uh, she is called and she's likened to God's wife. And you'll find this in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You'll find it in Isaiah chapter <coughs> 54, verse 1. <coughs> Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 32 talks about it. The book of Hosea is a whole book that is dedicated to the idea of it. And God <coughs> took that nation unto himself. Now, here we'll get to this in a minute. Where God took the nation of Israel and likened him the Old Testament identity, and likened himself to uh, her husband and, her, and her, the Israel, his wife. In the New Testament, Christ has a bride, and that bride is the church. That's the New Testament identity. So Christ has the bride, the church. God has his wife, the nation of Israel. <clears throat> Those two identities, all history revolves around. Everything on planet Earth from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 and everything in between will revolve around that. When you go to school someplace, and again, I think it's, it's very important, you get a Gentile perspective of history. You know what a Gentile perspective of history is? It's one nation rising up and kicking another nation out and taking it over, one war after another. You got the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War. You got the Spanish-American War. You got the Civil War. You got World War I, World War II. <coughs> it's, you got the French Inquisition. In you got Vietnam. You got Korea. It's one war after another. There's no sense to that unless you put the landmarks and realize why those wars are really taking place. When it comes to the nation of Israel, God set her apart from all the other nations. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11, and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. He makes a reference to that for us in a spiritual application. God gave the nation of Israel spiritual blessings that he never gave any other nation on this planet. you find it in 1 Chronicles 28 and Deuteronomy 23. It's right there for you. 
I mean, she got civil rights. We talk a lot about civil rights today. You don't even understand what civil rights are until you get into the Bible. She got civil rights that nobody else will ever have. Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Those are things that God gave Israel in a civil rights mindset that nobody, no other nation on this planet ever got. She gave them material possessions that she, he never gave anybody else. You find that a name is nine, Zechariah 14, Isaiah 11. God treated this nation differently because God had a plan and a purpose for this nation. And you know what? I'll tell you something else. He gave her eternal rights that he gave no other nation. I don't know any other nation on this planet that's going to get saved someday. I don't know any other nation on the planet or the history of the world that God has orchestrated all eternity around, but he has Israel. Now, this in your Bible is called the kingdom of heaven. We talk about it a lot around here. The kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. I know most people teach they're the same today, but if you know your Bible, you know they're not. The kingdom of heaven is Israel's. It's a literal, visceral kingdom that God gave to them in the Old Testament, and God used that kingdom of heaven to reach the world. The highest point of it when Solomon was on the throne. We don't have time to get into all of that, but it's an amazing study. And, and you know, and it's a, it's a, it puts everything in context. And if you know your Bible, or even a little bit of it, you will know that the nation of Israel rejected God as her husband. This is the whole course and context of the nation of Israel, how God called them out of Egypt, how God established them, how they rejected God, went after other gods, forsook him. Now you find it in Matthew chapter 21, laid out very clearly as a perspective of God in Israel in history. And we know that that brings about then, after Second Chronicles chapter 36, the, what we call the 400 silent years, where God... Not speak, didn't write anything. He didn't speak to anybody. 400 silent years, and that silence then is broken to Israel when? At the first coming of Christ, when Jesus shows up. And lastly, he sends them his son to them. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what do they do? They reject him. They crucify him. And they totally reject God and his son. And today, because of that, they're in deep apostasy. And the references for that that you want to find will be that kicked that thing over was Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 13. Two of the greatest chapters anywhere in the Bible on Israel, final rejection, maybe outside of Acts chapter 7. But here's the key. You got to get this. They are still God's chosen people. And we as a New Testament church need to see and understand how all this works. Now, I talk, talk, that's the first identity, briefly, just to keep it in the context. The second identity will be the New Testament local church, the church age. And here God calls us out as individuals. Where he called Israel out as a nation to be separate, he calls us out as individuals to be separate. Why? Because our kingdom is the kingdom of God. And where the kingdom of heaven was a literal kingdom for a nation, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, Romans chapter 14, verse 7, that is inside you. It's a spiritual kingdom, Luke chapter 17, verse 21, that, that's not of meat nor drink, but righteousness and peace in the Holy Ghost. It's a spiritual kingdom. And, you know, and you're going to find that where God tried to use the nation of Israel in the Old Testament dealing with nations, 
they rejected him and went their way. And then God came to the New Testament and called out a bride for his son, the church. Gave them the commission to take God's truth as individuals. And you've heard me say it many, many times. You see, in the Old Testament, they had a temple in Jerusalem. And all the world would come to that temple to worship. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the fact that in the New Testament, if you're saved, you and I are the temple. And we're in the Old Testament, they all came to the temple in a fixed spot. In the New Testament, we take our temples to the world. See how it works? It's not hard. You say, how can it be so easy? It's called context. Just get it in a context. A text without a context is a pretext. It's, it's just context. Now, I have to say this. In both cases, the Old Testament nation of Israel, the first landmark, and the church, the second landmark, they both go into apostasy. The church has done today exactly what Israel did in the Old Testament. They have rejected God's word. They rejected Christ. They, 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 they threw out his Bible. They, they, they just, uh, they're, they're just, a, they're just a, a worldly rendition of, of an empty shell of a church. But in both cases, oh, this is another great thing. In both cases, there's always a remnant. Now, you know what this church is? We still believe. We still sing the old song. You don't see any praise band up here. We're going to have a smoke screen come out under the pulpit, but the machine broke. Uh, we don't do all those worldly things. You can go to some churches today and close your eyes, listen to the music, and see the smoke. You could be in a nightclub in Las Vegas someplace. We still believe the church ought to be separate from the world. We preach that. We teach that. We still believe the King James 1611 authorized version as the complete word of God. We sing the old songs that were come out of the great Philadelphia church age when they had a message to them. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where we, we, we still believe and we, we, we are that remnant. We're, and there's many other churches that are like that, 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 we're, that they're a remnant of what it once was. You see, what's happened today is the world has changed in the last 50 years. Now, the problem is the church is never supposed to change. No matter if the world goes to hell in a handbag, we are out to be the same. And, and, and that's the key. But churches have changed. They, they went the way the world. They, they're going the same way the world goes. There's no difference between them anymore. And that can't be. Well, I mean, it can, but it shouldn't be. And, you know, in, in, in our verse today, it deals with us getting God's understanding and perspective on his chosen people, the, the nation of Israel. Now, there's a number of things that I want to show you here, and I want to move through so we stay in a timely fashion, and we're in great shape today. The first thing I want you to see in verse 18 in our verse today, note the fig tree. Now, in your Bible, the fig tree is, represents the nation of Israel. In fact, there's two trees in the Bible that represent Israel. One of them will be a vine tree and the other one will be a fig tree. Here we're talking about the fig tree. And here's the picture. Here's the picture. This will make the Bible kind of come into focus for you, save you a lot of time. You'll never have to read all the boring books that I had to read to get this. I'll give it to you cheap. Here's the picture. Israel, as God's wife, is likened to a fig tree planted by God in the Old Testament. You'll find that planting in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. He tells you what he did. And they are told to bear fruit in the Old Testament. 
that'll be all the other nations. Now, you'll find that in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 8. I could give you 40 other verses, but I'm just giving you one. We get into bring it up in Bible study, I can give you some more. But, but they're told to bear fruit in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 8, but she won't bear fruit. And you'll see that in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. She refuses to. So, when Christ comes at the first coming of Christ, she's a fig tree that is barren when Christ shows up at the first coming. And you find this in Luke chapter 13, verse 7, that there's a parable there. And then there's an actual story of an account in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, that Christ comes out, sees a fig tree that has no figs on it. And what does he do? He curses that fig tree. That's a picture of God's judgment on the nation of Israel, God's fig tree that God planted in the Old Testament, watered them, protected them, hedged them about, gave them everything that they needed to bear fruit. They chose not to. And now, in the Old Testament, they go into the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar and Shennacherib, Assyrian Babylon. Now they, 400 years, they're without anything. And now at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're in worse shape than ever. And when Christ comes to them... They're a barren fig tree that have bore no fruit. And you know what he does? He curses them. That curse is on them for the next 2,000 years. That's why the nation of Israel has been so persecuted and so hated. See how it puts things into context? That's why when he comes the first time, they're barren. And he curses them. And the real part of that curse is going to fall on them <coughs> in the tribulation period, which we know <coughs> from Revelation and other places in the Bible is that seven-year period where, uh, you know, the, the Antichrist uh, tries to wipe out the nation of Israel. But in spite of all that, in spite of all that, at the second coming of Christ, after Israel makes all of her mistakes, does all of the things that she does, rejects God over and over again for the sake of four or five thousand years, God finally, after going through that tribulation period and God breaking her will, breaking her back, breaking her spirit, she comes back to God and then God, at the second coming of Christ, restores the nation of Israel. Now today, and down through history, you will find a great hatred for the nation of Israel. I mean, it's, it's unparalleled. <clears throat> There has been no other nation on the face of this planet that has been hated more than the nation of Israel. And the reason for that is found in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. I don't have time to go into that this morning. But the reason why is because the devil hates the nation of Israel because obviously Christ came from the nation of Israel. Our salvation, John chapter 4, verse 22, came from the nation of Israel. And Israel in the millennium and on down into eternity is going to get exactly everything that the devil had at one point before he fell. So he hates Israel. And he uses the prejudice of the nation of Israel uh, against them to, to, to try to wipe them out and destroy them. And, uh, you know, most people, when you think of the nation of Israel or Jews... It's, it's in a bad connotation. We look at them as somebody who are always crooked, always trying to make a deal, always trying to steal your money, always trying to do this, will swindle you. You say, I got Jude. You know, uh, it's a, you know, they made a movie long back. It was a terrible movie. I was scared to death called Jaws, and it was about a shark. 
First time I saw it, I wouldn't even take a bath for a week. <clears throat> that movie scared me to death. The opening scene terrified me. And I was in the Army at the time. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't afraid of nothing except sharks. <laughs> Somebody says, why don't you take a cruise? I ain't going on the ocean. That's a big boat. It ain't big enough. I want an aircraft carrier with 19 destroyers around me for an escort. <clears throat> I ain't dying by eaten by a shark. They come out with one now that was different, more down, it was about Jews. It's called Lone Sharks. I'm giving you some Jew jokes now so you can see how they hate them. Somebody said one time, Mahalia Jackson saying, God bless America. 10,000 Catholics became Protestants. Eddie Fisher saying, Ave Maria. And 10,000 Protestants became Catholic. Eddie Fisher saying, there's a gold mine in the sky. And 10,000 Jews joined the Air Force. (laughs) See how it goes? In 1948, May the 15th, 1948, the nation of Israel, one of the most unprecedented events in the history of certainly a man, but really within the Bible. It is such an unprecedented time that I could take the rest of the day and, and show you all the ramifications of it. But the nation of Israel, uh, Israel became a nation. Up to that point, she was not a nation. And uh, on May the 15th, 1948, she became a nation. And at midnight, she's immediately attacked by seven Arab nations. And by this way, they're the same seven Arab nations that attacked them when they went into the land back in Joshua. But that's another series. And to this day, there are nations, almost without exception, that will not accept the nation of Israel or recognize them. The Roman Catholic Church has never recognized them as a nation. But the Roman Catholic Church did recognize Arafat in the, in the uh, Palestine uh, government and that that was okay. But they've never recognized the nation of Israel, nor will they. You'll find that many churches don't do it. You'll find that many Christians don't do it. You'll find that many denominations are totally against the nation of Israel. And they will not recognize them as God's people in government. <clears throat> in government. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where you find within our senators, within our congressmen, within our president sometimes. They're anti-Israel. Oh, they talk about it, but when push comes to shove in national policy, they're against the nation of Israel. And I know, politically, they think they've got to balance the whole thing out. You know, I'm not going to be president, but if I were president, I'd probably last about 15 minutes before somebody put a bullet in my head. But in those 14 minutes, I'll tell you what I would do in the proclamation I would do. You know what I'd do? I'd forget politics. I'd realize that politics isn't going to forget this. Politics isn't going to fix this world. I realize the only thing that's going to fix this world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just get right down to it. And I just figure out, you know what, if there's a tribulation coming and if there's a rapture coming and there's a big war coming, then let's just get it on. And I would just tell everybody that, you know what, I'm not doing the politics anymore. We're going to recognize the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. We're going to give them everything they need, everything that they want, whatever they need. Not going to cost them a dime. And we're going to give it them so they can wipe out everybody over there that wants to wipe out them for the last 2,000 years. Now, that would not make you popular with the Congress or the Senate or this country. But, boy, you'd shine up in heaven with God. 
You know what you've got to come down to sometimes in your Christian life? Who are you worried about pleasing? The people around you or God Almighty? Amen. And that's what it comes got to come down to. Now, you don't have to get nervous about that because I ain't going to make the trip. <coughs> <coughs> I mean, Trump does call me every once in a while when he has a thing he needs to know what's going on, but uh, that ain't going to happen. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, in America, you find the Aryan Brotherhood. There are a bunch of guys who are white who claim to be Christian. And, uh, you know, they hate the Jews. Uh, they, they, they're called white supremacists. They not only hate the Jews, they hate the blacks. They don't like anybody. And they, they don't think black people have souls. You got a soul, don't you? you yeah. Darn right you do. And you, 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 you're saved on your way to heaven, Amen. see? Amen. And you're my brother in Christ. We need to go out there and wipe those guys out. What do you think, buddy? Huh? Me and you. I'll tell you what. They're ridiculous. Absolutely. You know, and they don't have an answer to this because I nailed them. I had one guy one time tell me he was just going on and on and on. He thinks you guys are the mud people in Genesis chapter 1. I asked him to show me mud people. There wasn't even any mud in there. He thought that you guys were the beasts of the fields, that they're black people. So I asked him, I said, well, let me ask you a question. And he, he doesn't believe the Jews that are, uh, in, he, don't, he believed that the white people in America are the real Jews. He doesn't even believe that the Jews are Jews anymore. So he's going on and on and on. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, how come the first guy saved in the Bible like you and I got saved was a black person, an Ethiopian eunuch? You know, he used to pay for an hour to try to get me to believe that that Ethiopian eunuch wasn't black. <laughs> you know, you got to work at that. <laughs> You really got to work at that. I had a black guy preaching one time, and he said the eunuch got saved, and he went home and told his mommy eunuch and all the little eunuchs that he got saved. He was black. You know Simon the Serene and the guy that helped cross the Christ or carried the cross? He was black. He didn't have an answer to that. I took him over to Acts chapter 11 where the first called Christians in Acts chapter 13 and showed him the guys in the church that were ministering there. There was a Jew converted. There was a Gentile who was the brother of, of, of Herod, brother or cousin of Herod, and there was two black guys. He don't have an answer to that. You know why? Because you're an idiot. That's why. <laughs> and you take everything out of context because if you stay with the context, <clears throat> you know what? If you, when you got, you know why, why the first guy in the Bible got saved was a black man? Like you and I got saved? You know why? Because he's a servant of servants. And you know what that model is? When you get saved, you need to be a servant of servants. You don't have any rights. You were knocked down and sold on the block at Calvary, paid for by the blood of Christ. You don't have any rights. You're a bond slave. And that's, that's, that's just where these guys come from. And I'm telling you, a lot of confusion today. A lot of confusion. You got the Ku Klux Klan. You got Protestant churches. You got politicians. In theology, you got go off to seminary someplace. They'll teach you uh, all millennialism or post millennialism. You know what all millennialism, post millennialism? It's about five thousand big five hundred dollar words to mean absolutely nothing. You know what it does? <clears throat> it takes all the promises that were given to you and the nation of Israel and takes it away from them. That's where it's at. And all this confusion will become, I'm telling you, it will become crystal clear when you just start asking some questions. Why is that? What's going on here? And then find the one book on planet Earth that will put life, history, and current events into context for you, the Word of God. 
And no greater place is this ever laid out than the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the single greatest book to you and me after you get saved. Now, keep in mind our verse that we're studying today in verse 18 of Proverbs 27, whoso keepeth the fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof. Now, we've already established that the fig tree is the nation of Israel. And one of the greatest doctrines of the Bible would be God dealing with the nation of Israel and how we should, uh, how we should see them and understand and how we should deal with them. You know, most people don't believe that the order of the books in the Bible were ever inspired or done by God or have any real purpose or meaning to them. And of course, you know, I feel sorry for you if that's your dementia, where you're at with it all. But I want to tell you, the order of the New Testament books, much like the order of the New Old Testament books, means something. They establish a context. I mean, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the historical books that deal with God's dealing with the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. There's no church in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It didn't come to Acts chapter 1. Then you got the book of Acts. The book of Acts brings you from the nation of Israel into the church age, doesn't it? Now, you know what? After you get that transition and the church age starts, you know the first book he gives you after Acts? It's Romans. Do you know why? Because Romans is the handbook of Bible doctrine for what every New Testament Christian is supposed to believe after they get saved. Then you know what he does? After he gives you what we're to believe, he gives you the books that are written to the churches, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Know what he does after that? He gives you the books that are written to the individual Christians, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Then he goes back to the next set of books. He goes back to uh, the books that are not written to churches. They're called the epistles, and they all are bringing you toward the book of the Revelation. It's an incredible outline. And, uh, you know, uh, when you get all through that in the book of Romans, you will find that Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11 will be the great two chapters to you and to me that establish a context of how we in the New Testament Christianity, the church, are to view and deal the nation of Israel. What we as New Testament Christians need to know about what God is doing. Now, here's how it works. The book of Romans is a great book. I got a few extra minutes here, so... Instead of giving you a bathroom break, let's, let's run through this. <laughs> Book of Romans. Here's how it lays down. Romans chapter 1, he explains how the Gentiles got into the mess that they got into. That's me and you. In Romans chapter 2, he explains how the Jew got into the mess that they got into. And that's a great book, chapter. In chapter 3, he shows us how that the Jew following the law... And the Gentile following his conscience, Old Testament, will never solve the mess that both of them have. Then he goes into chapter 4 and 5 and he shows us, oh, what two chapters. Then he shows us in chapter 4 and 5 that the only answer to the man, the Gentile's mess and the Jew's mess is getting God's righteousness through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Then in chapter 6, he shows us Christ's death to your death, the fact that if you become a Christian, now you're dead to sin. You don't have to live in sin anymore. Sin has no more dominion over you. What a great chapter that is. And in chapter 7, he continues to show you that now that you are saved, that you're dead to the law. Where the law pronounced you as a sinner, now you're free from the law because now you're in Christ Jesus. 
in chapter 8, he talks about the two adoptions. You were adopted spiritually the day you got saved. That's the spiritual adoption. Cry, Abba, Father. And then a little bit later on, he talks about the adoption of the redemption of your body, that you're going to get a new glorified body that's going to match up to your glorified soul that you have right now inside you that doesn't appear. And then he goes into chapter 9. And in chapter 9, now he switches to the nation of Israel because he wants us to understand how the nation of Israel affects us. So in chapter 9, what he does is he begins to tell us why Israel got in the mess that they got into. What a great chapter that is. You know what he does in chapter 10? He stays with the progression. In chapter 10, because we all know that when God was finished temporarily with the Jew, he brought in the church age, the second identity, you and me. So chapter 9 shows how the Jew gets into a mess. Chapter 10 now shows Gentile salvation, how that the gospel went to the Gentiles. And there when you want to win somebody to Christ, there it is. For thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God will raise thee from the dead. God gives you everything that you need to understand about salvation through that concept. And it's an incredible concept. Then in chapter 11, you know what he does? In chapter 11, he goes back to the restoration of the nation of Israel after God done with the church. It's an incredible book. And in chapter 12, he deals with us dealing with other people. In chapter 13, he deals with our relationship to our government. In chapter 14, he deals with our relationship with other Christians, as I've already told you. And in chapter 15, he signs off, says farewell, goodbye, thanks a lot, see you in the morning, and off he goes. The book of Romans is an incredible book, but chapter 9, 10, and 11. 9 shows us the perspective of the church why Israel got in the mess that they got into. Chapter 10 shows it coming to us, but ah, chapter 11 shows that God's not finished with the Jew. He's going to restore them. You know, in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, there's a great picture of this, Proverbs 27, 18, uh, for our watch care of the nation of Israel. At the crucifixion, Christ is on the cross. He's being crucified. And John... And Mary, the mother of Jesus, are at his feet at the foot of the cross. Now, keep in mind, if you know anything about your Bible, John is a great type of the New Testament Christian. Mary is very clear as a type of the nation of Israel. So here's the picture in type. Here's what you got. And boy, you can't beat this when it comes to the Bible. By the way, I haven't cracked one Greek lexicon yet to get all this. You know why? Because it's in the English. So here is Christ on the cross. Down at his feet is John, the greatest type of the Christian probably in the New Testament. And then you have Mary, who's a type of the nation of Israel. And lo and behold, Jesus looks down and sees them both there, and here's what he said. He says to John, type of the church, behold thy mother. And he says to Mary, type of Israel, behold thy son. You know what he just did? He just showed you that he gave the watch care of the nation of Israel to the church in a type, in a picture between John and Mary. And I'm telling you, it's an incredible concept when you understand it. And all this is laid out in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 29. Here's where he really gets into the meat of it. Dealing with Israel's restitution at the second coming. I want to read it for you, verse 25. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Here it comes as concerning the gospel written to you and me. They are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are the beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gift and the calling of God or without repentance. Now, let me break this passage down for you. If you don't have this in your Bible, you'll want to get this in. This is the once-in-a-lifetime shot, because next time I'm going to charge you. Look at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceit. Two things here. Ignorant and mystery. I don't know, again, what you know about the Bible. If you've been out here any length of time, you picked up on some of this. If you're in Bible Institute, you ought to have it by now. But in the Bible, there's seven things that you're told not to be ignorant of as a Christian. And yet those are the exact seven things that the average Christian has no clue about. Seven things that you were told not to be ignorant about, and one of those seven is God dealing with the nation of Israel. And on top of that, he says this is the great mystery. Ignorant of this mystery. There are seven mysteries in the Bible given to the church, which nobody understands today because they don't read and study their Bible anymore. One of those seven mysteries here, we have it right here, is God dealing with the nation of Israel. So I want you to see that. When you don't put Israel in its proper context or perspective, here's what happens to you in verse 25. Wise in your own conceit. You think God's finished with a nation of Israel, or you think you've replaced a nation of Israel, or you have such a hatred for the nation of Israel that you put them in a category where you just discount them totally and completely, and you think God is all finished with them. Now, he says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The fullness of the Gentiles will be the rapture of the church when the Gentiles are taken out, the church is taken out, and then God begins to take his attention to the nation of Israel. Verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. Now, I got to stop here because I want to give you this. There's a great illustration of this over in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. It's probably worth your time to turn over there. And you want to put this in your Bible. We'll get it laid out at some point. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 and 25. He says, blindness in part has happened to Israel. Okay, here we go. Verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. And he cometh to Bethesda, and they bring a blind man unto him, and he sought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored, and he saw every man clearly. You know what you got there? You got a picture of Romans chapter 8, verse 25. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. This blind man is a picture of the nation of Israel. He shows you Israel's spiritual blindness. So when Christ touches him the first time, he only sees partly. That means... Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Some Jews get saved, but majority of them stay into apostasy. But then he touches that man the second time, second coming of Christ, 
And notice, look, notice the key word. The man is restored. There's Israel, and he sees every man clearly. That's the, that's the picture. That's the example of Romans chapter 8, verse 25. Blindness in part has happened to Israel at the first coming of Christ. But at the second coming of Christ, they're going to get fully restored. So he reaches this blind man who's a picture of the nation of Israel. And I've told you that before. Every woman, every man, every example in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is going to be some kind of picture of Israel's spiritual condition. I've told you that a hundred times. And the bottom line is, here is the case, here's the point. Here's a guy who is blind, picture the nation of Israel, who he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. The first time the Lord touches him, it doesn't completely heal him. He's still partly blind. Picture the first coming of Christ. Second time, God touches him again. Now he's restored and completely sees picture of the second coming and the restoration of the nation of Israel. No Greek needed. You see, that's how your Bible's put together. I'm going to tell you something. And I know I tell you this all the time and you don't believe it or you just blow it off. There's a mind behind that Bible that is not too apparent to a Greek and Hebrew scholar. There's a mind behind that book that it's not, it's, it's just not you getting in the book. It's that book getting into you. It'll change your life. It'll give you a context of everything in life. All right, now verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. Notice, not as a nation. That's for the church. But as a nation. Kingdom of heaven. And for this you'll see Acts 3.19, Ezekiel chapter 37, Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 8, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And uh, this is, uh, and I want you to notice, I told you this Thursday night when we were in Bible study, the word regenerate. You only find the word regenerate or regeneration two times in your Bible, only two. The first time, find over there in the book of Titus, and uh, chapter 3, verse 5, and it talks about you and me getting saved by washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We talked about that Thursday night. That's you and me. The day you got saved, you got regenerated. The second one is found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, and it's dealing with Israel at the second coming of Christ when it says there that Israel is going to get saved in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne, second coming in the millennium. You, you just, the Bible will put everything in a history, in your life, in current events, in your family, in your own personal world. It'll put everything into a context. Now, you can look around you what you see on Fox News, CNN, CBS, ABC. I don't care. And you, can, you have the ability to read through all the garbage and understand what God is doing today. Verse 27. For this is my covenant unto them, which I shall, when I take away their sins. Now, this covenant will be found in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. It will also be found in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 18. Other places, but time does not permit us. It's a millennial covenant given to the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ as they get the salvation and regenerated and Israel gets born again as a nation. It's an incredible concept. Now, here it comes. Here's Proverbs 27, verse 18. Took almost 40 minutes to get here. 
I haven't even given you the poems yet. I sang the song I got for you. Whoso keepeth the fig tree shall eat of the fruit thereof. Verse 28, Romans chapter, Romans chapter 11. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, that's Israel, they are the beloved for the Father's sake. The bottom line, he's simply saying this, and here's what he's saying. The nation of Israel right now will be your enemy. They reject Christ. They reject New Testament Christianity. They're still in apostasy. They're still in their sin. They're messed up now even more than they were back in Jesus' day. They're totally in apostasy. And, you will, and they will be to you your enemy. That's what he's saying. He says, as concerning the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, whom they rejected, they are enemies for your sakes. If you're saved here this morning, they look at you as their enemy. But as touching the election, they are the beloved of the Father. Here's what he's saying. Let them be your enemy. Don't you be their enemy. Why? Because you're supposed to have understanding through the Word of God of what God's dealing with them. And as a New Testament Bible believer, understanding the seven mysteries and the seven things I'm not to be ignorant of, and uh, I understand God dealing with the nation of Israel. I realize what he's doing with them. And I realize that I'm here to help them. It doesn't matter if they don't like me. You're going to go through your Christian life, you're going to find a lot of people who don't like you. That does not give you a license not to like them. And of course, it's the same with the nation of Israel. I don't care that they reject Christ. I don't care that they look at me as their enemy. God's going to straighten that out. He's their, they're his people. I've already been told that I'm to take care of them. I've already seen the example that Christ on the cross giving his mother to John. I understand. I have the watch care of the nation of Israel. I pray for them. I ask God to deal with them. I ask God to give us leaders in our government. You may not like Trump. You may, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not political one way or the other. It doesn't matter to me. They're, they're all the same in most cases, but I will give him this. He is pro-nation of Israel. And that's probably the only thing that's keeping this country above water right now. Then he says in verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now that's a tough verse for a lot of people because they take it out of context. I've had people ask me the question, what does that verse mean, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance? I thought you had to repent to be saved. Well, first of all, Bugwit, it's not talking about you. Put it in a context, it's talking about Israel. And the second thing, we get this idea that, that repentance is forgiveness, that repentance is salvation. It's not. But I'll tell you what it will do. Repentance may not be forgiveness. Repentance is not salvation. But listen to me very carefully. Repentance, true repentance, will lead you to forgiveness and lead you to salvation. Because repentance is turning of a direction in your life. Turning, repentance is going one way of the world and repenting and going the other way where you'll find forgiveness and you'll find redemption and you'll find salvation. But repentance, as you find it in the Bible, never means salvation. It just means a change of direction. And what he's saying in verse 29, when it comes to the nation of Israel, no matter what they've done, no matter how they've forsaken him, they're still his people, and the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance to Israel. He's not going to change his mind in how he's dealing with them. 
Once you understand the context of repentance, that it's a change of direction, has nothing to do with salvation, though it can lead a person to salvation. In this text here, in the context of what we're talking about with Israel in chapter 11, he's simply saying, I'm not going to change what I'm doing or what I'm going to do to the nation of Israel. They are my people. She's my wife. And right now, we are estranged from each other, but I'm going to restore her. Which brings up an incredible New Testament principle for all of us at the bottom line of both identities. Look at all the things. I mean, we could sit here the rest of this week and list all the things that Israel has done against God. Yet he wants to restore them. And you've got somebody in your life, maybe you've got one or two things they've done against you, and you will not restore them. Now, our verse today, Whoso keepeth the fig tree shall eat of the fruit thereof. God said in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, this is how it, for you and for me, Genesis 27, 29, and Numbers chapter 24, verse 9, he simply said, I'll curse, talking about Israel, I'll curse those that curse thee, and I'll bless thee that bless thee. There's curses and blessings on your attitude toward the nation of Israel. If you look at them with an attitude of, of uh, Romans chapter 11, where you're wise in your own conceit, you're going to get the curse of God on your life. If you look at them as the blessings of God, no matter what they think about you or say to you, you have a bigger than that and you know what God's doing and you give them that grace because of the fact that you know they're God's chosen people and you help them when they don't want to help you, God's going to bless you for it. It's simply the blessings of God in our lives for taking care of the Jews. It's any nation's national policy toward the nation of Israel will rise and fall on what, God, what happens to them. It'll be a church's blessings or failures because of their attitude toward the nation of Israel becoming wise in their own conceit. And it'll be any so-called Christian, child of God, who calls himself a Christian but takes a stand against the, the nation of Israel. And then look at the last part of verse 27, 18. So he that waiteth on his master shall be honored. Now that's you and me. The master's Christ. And we're waiting on Christ to do what he has to do with the nation of Israel. We're waiting on God to set up the events of history, which we see unfolding before us in the Middle East today, to bring Israel back to himself. You know, the 20th century has been an incredible century. I, I would say probably, and uh, it's probably no other century like it in the history of man uh, when it comes to what the Bible unfolding and what God is doing. Because as I told you earlier, we saw that during this century in 1948, the Jews became a nation, the nation of Israel. And today, uh, they only have a small fingertip hold on the land that was promised to them with Abraham. All the enemies, all Satan's cohorts have everything that God promised to them. They, they don't even have all of Jerusalem. The very place where the temple is going to be built in the Bible, the Dome of the Rock, is Muslim. They're just hanging on by their fingertips. And the United Nations and many other nations want to even strip that from them. But we saw in the 20th century some incredible things unfold if you allow the Bible to put history into a context for you.
It was around 1880 that what we would call in history the Zionist movement started. The Jews had been without a country since 606 B.C. And there was sympathy for them. And some men began to write some papers about Israel and all of those things that, that, uh, that being without a nation. And they became known as the Zionist movement. But we had problems because Europe was really running the world at that particular point in time. And the, Europe was all run by monarchies. You had the Russian Empire, you had the British Empire, you had the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you had the Italian Empire, and all Europe was factioned that way. So what happened was God brought about World War I, and at the end of World War I, all those dynasties are gone. There's only one dynasty left, and that is the dynasty of England. And England was a Bible-believing nation at that time, and there was a guy in Parliament by the name of Lord Belfar who put forth what is called the Belfar Declaration. The Belfar Declaration was a declaration brought up in Parliament, British Parliament, to give the land back to the Jew. Now, you'll talk about circumstances and events. It was in 1917 and 1918 that Lord Allaby, who was a born-again Christian, in charge of the British Expeditionary Forces, kicked the Muslims out of Jerusalem. And now here we have the Zionist movement. The Muslims were in the land. The Ottoman Turks got completely destroyed in World War I, and they boot them out. Now England, who believes the Bible, has control of the Jerusalem, puts forth a declaration to give that land back to the Jew. Well, make a long story short... They, they didn't give it back. The Arabs got in, England as a small little nation, you know, island nation, and the, and the Grand Moffat of Arabia who um, came in and threatened them that they'd never get any more oil, and they reneged on the Belfort Declaration. Didn't give it to them. It's all in God's timing. By that time, the Jews had spread through Europe. They were having land everywhere, making money. I mean, that Europe was in a great, great recession. I mean, in Germany, it took 60 million Reichmarks just to buy a loaf of bread. Terrible depression. But the Jews had money. They're putting gold in their teeth, Auschwitz, Treblinka. They're putting gold. They had money everywhere. They're the only ones that had any money. And they didn't want to leave to go back at that point. So you know what God did? God raised up a guy over there that at the end of World War II, decimated the Jews to the point where they were ready to go back. And where England were begged on the Delphar Declaration, it didn't make any difference. At the end of World War II, through the events that happened to the Jew, they went back, and in 1948, they became a nation. The 20th century was an incredible nation. You know what it was? The Zionist, you know what it was? World War I got the land ready for the Jew. World War II got the Jew ready for the land. In 1948, they became a nation. And when they became a nation, God said, this is the last event before Israel gets restored at the second coming. I mean, you're right there, man. You're right there. God's timetable for the Jew, and we're waiting on him. We're to occupy till he comes. And I know it's close. May not see it in my lifetime. 
But uh, it's close. And I'm telling you right now, that verse says, he that waiteth on his master shall be honored. That honor is going to be us as a remnant, this church, praying for Israel, understanding God, dealing with Israel, putting all history into perspective, understanding where we're at in relationship to the second coming of Christ, and doing everything that we can in these last days. And when Israel gets restored, gets back in the land, we will be partakers of her fruit. Just like Proverbs chapter 27, verse 18 says. Years ago, I read a book by an old English pastor. I can't remember the book. I don't have the book anymore. I don't even remember if the book was any good. <laughs> Didn't have any pictures in it. I know that. But one thing I got out of that book that I never forgot. It actually changed my whole perspective on the ministry, life, people, and what I do. You know, there's, there'll be a lot of things in your life that you'll spend a time reading something and most of it will be a mess, but you'll get one thing out of it that'll really make a difference to you. You know what he said? I've never forgotten this. He said the job of every Christian in whatever age he lived, church age, is to find out and understand what the prevailing spirit worldly spirit of that age is and with everything God gives him and everything he has spend the rest of his life going against that spirit I've never forgotten that that is the true job of this church it's the job of every church it's the job of every born again Christian we're not to be part of the spirit of this world the spirit of antichrist we're supposed to be part of God's spirit And God's spirit and the world's spirit will never get along. Why we think in churches today we can make that happen, I don't know. But it's obviously it fails. And our job in this church is to understand what God is doing. Our job in this church is to wait on him as he does the last finishing touches on his masterpiece called the nation of Israel. That is, so when he's ready in his time, he takes that portrait And he puts it down in the land where he promised them. And they get everything that he told them. And for you and for me, our kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, we stand there before Almighty God. He looks down at us and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You figured it out. You stayed the course. You figured out the context of life through the Bible I gave you. You took the right perspective on the book. You took the right perspective on your family. You took the right perspective on ministry. You took the right perspective on people. And you took the right perspective on the nation of Israel. Now enter into the joy of thy kingdom. That's where it's at. I'm telling you. You read that verse, you wouldn't think all that's in there. Oh, the mind behind that Bible. Ah, the supernatural hand that turns those pages and opens up those thoughts and those principles and those pictures and those stories. All to put everything that we have to face, my dear friend, into a context. When the Bible says that God will never leave you nor forsake you, he's not just talking about Christ in your life. He's talking about giving you the book of context. That'll put everything, every crooked thing straight in your life, in this world you'll ever have to deal with. Well, we'll hold up there.